Hello, my name is Rebecca Rees and welcome to Digital Dissect, the podcast that observes and breaks open the music industry through the lens of digital analysis. Because I'm on a quest to make sense of the changing digital landscape by exploring questions like, how is digital media changing the culture of creative industries? Today I'm joined by video producer from Black Dog Films, Greg Barnes, to break down the process of creating a visual narrative and discuss how to retain value in creative work that consumers risk easily losing touch with in this shifting economy. In 1964, Marshall McLuhan coined the concept the medium is the message, which suggests that the medium in which we communicate through is more important than what is actually being communicated. In 2021, this is still relevant, as it remains impossible to understand social and cultural changes without media to translate. This concept is often occupied in conversation by those that create for a living and rings truest in Greg's work, where he has worked with a variety of artists like Kamal Williams, Laura Mish and Dan Kroll, as well as timeless taste-making companies like GQ and Esquire. Possibly the one consistency in the creative industries is that they are full of visionary characters that have unique and complex ways of channeling ideas and translating messages. They are relied upon to amplify an artistic concept, those which many music and media consumers base their interests and beliefs on, and creators like Greg have the unique opportunity of twisting and enhancing this perspective. Today he's behind a microphone rather than a camera to delve into the process of creating nostalgic narratives and how he manages to maintain a style so unmistakably his whilst working with such a spectrum of clients. Hey Greg, welcome to Digital Dissect. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've uh, been looking forward to this. You're welcome. How have you been navigating this time then as a creative? Has creativity helped you as a coping mechanism? Yeah, I think being a creative in lockdown or in any sort of isolation, it's like a double-edged sword. On one hand, you have this wonderful way to use your time and a skill set that can hopefully bring some excitement to any scenario. Anything is a story, even if you're locked inside the room you see every day, you might be able to find something extra in that. But also, there's that pressure to make something from it at the same time. So whilst you have this toolbox at your disposal, it's also a little bit of a curse because there's a pressure to do something, like to actually do something with it. So... It's been an odd one in the fact that I'm really grateful to the fact that I have a camera that I can, you know, lens up a room and find some interest or a cinematic moment in everyday life. And that's escapism for me. But that escapism only goes so far without the kind of obligation to create or the pressure to make something good rather than something that might only be there as a form of catharsis. 
I think what you say there about time is really interesting. And in terms of photography, I personally rediscovered why I fell in love with photography in the first place. And obviously, I'm currently working in the music industry and I'm dedicated to marketing and to new initiatives. But I do freelance in photography myself on the side. And I've worked in a camera store with some amazing photographers. And through that, I then met some more photographers And during lockdown one, I was shooting rolls and rolls of film, which I hadn't done in such a long time and was revisiting it on a much more granular level. And this outlet really allowed me to take perspective and have some introspection and actually like reconnect with myself. So did you feel you had that a little bit too? Yeah, I think you make a really strong point, especially along the lines of introspection, because I feel like before lockdown had come along, A lot of us in the creative arts had, obviously, we'd booked our schedules to create work and do work and ultimately get paid for that work. And that's great. But a lot of the time, that's not the reason why we got into these professions that we do. I found that once I'd cleared my schedule of deadlines and work that was required of me, and that's a like a desk of deadlines that I've not been able to clear for 10 years. There's always been, I'll get this edit done today, then I've got that one I've got to do tomorrow. What an amazing feeling it might feel like to clear it all and focus on one thing at a time. But now that edit log is clear. So I can actually focus on things on a micro level. And Like you, I think I found a newfound appreciation for the feeling that photography or videography gives me and that living in the present rather than worrying about the product it's going to make or getting this thing done now so that I can clear another item off my desk later. There's so much more focus, I feel, in what I'm doing at the moment. And that's definitely one of the biggest positives of lockdown for me. Like you say, having your camera and just like you've been taking a lot more photos, so have I. There's a renewed sense of purpose when you leave the house with a camera on your shoulder. Even if you've done that walk a hundred times, there's an element extra in doing it with a camera in your hand. There's like a mission there. Even if you're not going to take any photos that day, it just gives you a little bit of purpose. And I'm so grateful to that. Absolutely. I can relate with that. And also... On a daily basis, as a creative, you are always creating too much for you to actually be able to manage. And what was nice was seeing a lot of creatives I follow, like on Instagram or on YouTube, sorting through old archives of their stuff and repurposing it and having the time to do that. Yeah, I mean, there was one film at the start of lockdown that I shot in 2011 on a road trip with a friend across America And I just hadn't had time to even look at it since. And I knew it was on a drive somewhere. And then as soon as I woke up on the second day of having nothing to do, I was like, there is no excuse now. I've got to go in. I've got to actually make something of this. And it only ended up as, you know, Instagram video. But having actually put it to purpose and done something with it was quite rewarding. And similarly, there was an advert that I did for Chevrolet, which I was never happy with, and I finally managed to do my director's cut with it, that never would have happened if I had that backlog of work. So there are some nice things, yeah. And the feeling you get from revisiting that old footage, 
I suppose in itself is just escapism from what was happening and that does enable you to cope. And you said that you were lucky to have equipment at your disposal during lockdown and you produced a wonderfully shot video from your flat in London called 100 Feet of Distance and it featured some really stunning shots of light reflections flooding into the corners of your flat and it was paired with audio clips from news bulletins about the virus, the Queen's speech and also voice notes from friends and family which was actually quite sobering and it's a very thought-provoking piece. Did this help you process what was going on? Because I feel like the medium of storytelling has always been so important, but right now it feels essential. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I think originally when making that film, it was more of a coping mechanism to make myself feel relevant to kind of take away the feeling of any sort of lethargy that I had, self-resentment for sitting around. And it was rewarding to kind of look at my flat in ways I hadn't seen it before. It definitely wouldn't have been somewhere I would have optioned to film in before being trapped there for day on day on day. It certainly helped to give me that sort of purpose. Looking back, what was happening as well, I wasn't fully focusing on it in the present because even though lockdown was in its infancy, it was an unknown metric and I didn't know when it was going to end. And there was a fear and having chatted to you about this a little bit before as well, just in passing, I think it's a, a universal thing. But there was a fear that this lockdown film I was making would suddenly become irrelevant as soon as lockdown ended, which is quite ironic because I think it's around nine months since I made it. And here we are. We're still in lockdown. There was no reason to have been worried about that. But what I think is special about it for me is that watching it now and remembering making it is valuable to remember what it was like and I think it's become more valuable as time has gone on than it was actually at the time because it's so easy to be nostalgic about even lockdown one you hear people talking about like it was great it was sunny but it was also scary and I could quite readily forget the more somber or sobering parts of it without having, you know, given that a rewatch and remembering the feelings that I was going through at the time, the uncertainty. It actually is something that a couple of like musician friends have said to me as well, the fact that like they write a song and they don't know what that song is about. They couldn't tell a journalist in an interview, but then six years later they realise I was writing it about that time I felt so isolated or that relationship that was ending. It's amazing how we can make these things really as a projection of what we are feeling without even knowing it. And then afterwards, it's how we can process it. I think firstly, it's interesting what you said about trying to find beauty in your four walls and, and somewhere you wouldn't have particularly chosen to film in as your first choice. And that's really nice because it made you appreciate the small things in your surrounding, like the light. And yeah, I also felt that watching the video hearing those news bulletins made me realize how I felt the first time I saw Boris Johnson announce this lockdown and how serious it all just suddenly became I can imagine myself watching something like that and also looking back at my own photography or, or the music I was listening to in like 10 years time and feeling that anxiety and that is really really powerful Definitely. I think music and also like then film has such a transportative effect. 
and you can listen to something or watch something and it can trigger something and it can transport you straight away. And it's a real time capsule. I remember like going on holiday and purposefully over listening to a particular album or something because the hope would be in a couple of years time I could listen to it and it would almost take me back to that holiday. So I wonder if there's like a subconscious part of that and what we create and the hope that it will take us back there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's quite a pivotal time in our history to be creating and documenting. If you are anything like me, you like to take on a lot all at once. You like to say yes to all the different creative projects you could possibly get involved in. So how did you deal with going from high demand with projects and maybe traveling a lot to then possibly having nothing at all? Yeah, it was certainly an adjustment. And I'm just like you. I will basically entertain every creative opportunity that comes my way. I won't always go with it, but I'll always give it a thought and... I'll always invest time into thinking about it first. And I'll often take a, an interesting job and I will often have way too much on my plate. And I think in some respects, that's been a good thing to kind of work on that adrenaline. But it certainly gave me two bits of perspective. When everything dropped off the cliff edge, and it did, at first it felt kind of refreshing um, and maybe a short-lived time to kind of regroup and regather my thoughts. And then obviously it gets a little bit more concerning and you start to wonder like who am I if I'm not constantly creating like so much of my identity is associated with filmmaking that when I wasn't doing it I realized it's not just my career it or like part of what you know I do it's also like my largest hobby so there was a lot of adjustment I was traveling so much as part of my job definitely in a different country maybe two to three times a month and now I've been in London for a year and in basically the same four walls. I think it was more trying to reconcile it with myself and letting myself relax into the prospect that there's not much I can really do about it and then there was another side of me that really went into the hustle and was like trying to think of ways to pivot, adapt. I was sending emails to like artist friends, to brands, just trying to think of ways that I could keep busy. God forbid that I can sit and do nothing for a few hours. On the other side, I started to occupy myself with larger projects that I'd always neglected. So I started to try at least to write the dreaded screenplay that everybody always seems to have. And I've been talking about this one idea for years and I finally thought, if not now, then when? So I still have only written a few pages of it, but the research element has finally been done. And that was a good six months of like reading books and watching films associated with the idea and diving into it. And I felt that gave me a sense of purpose, even when I couldn't look at something through a camera I felt at least I was doing something worthwhile there. Yeah, I, I totally think you're right about the research and being able to like thoroughly prepare and having time to step back from a project and really reevaluate every stage of it and have that piece of work. And I know we did touch on this just briefly, but on the flip side to then having nothing to do, did you feel pressure to make the most of that time, you know, that lockdown period? And 
anything you were creating, keep it relevant because I was certainly guilty of running a couple of projects during the first few weeks of lockdown and pressing to release them by the summer to make sure they remained relevant. And here we are a year later, they would still be relevant and probably a bit better. (laughs) Um, Did you feel that pressure? Yeah, certainly. There was such a fear that anything that I was doing was going to become culturally irrelevant really soon. And I think more and more, for better or for worse, what we're doing in the filmmaking community and the video community feels rooted in current events. And if we're not on the same wave, these videos or publications, pieces of art, they just don't seem to hit with an audience as much. And I know that it's not the main uh, objective when you're creating something. But if you put your heart and soul into something and you put it into the outside world and it's essentially a vacuum, it's quite defeating. So there was a large part of like 100 foot of distance was probably the main embodying piece like this, where I was just like, I need to get it ready now. And because of lockdown, the film labs were taking longer than usual to return the rushes from when I was getting them processed. And I was like losing hair over it. I was calling them up and being like, do you think it might be ready tomorrow? Because I was just so sure by the time I finally got the footage back and edit it and put it out there, people would be like, that's so last month. And, you know, there would be this overriding feeling of like lockdown. It was just a couple months of holiday. These feelings that have been expressed were pantomime. I think that there was a bit of a fear of the unknown, like something must explode soon. That's going to be the new trend of the pandemic or, you know, what digital platform is then going to overtake this creative idea I've had. And and that's why it will no longer be irrelevant, even if we weren't going to exit the lockdown. And I feel like there's also shifting attitudes in whether people want to even acknowledge the pandemic and what we're going through. I saw a trailer for a film Uh, with some major stars in it and it was based around lockdown I'm not sure if people want to see that like I don't want to go into a cinema when they finally open to watch a two-hour feature-length film about what I've just endured day in day out I don't even want to see masks in a film I I just want to pretend and escape for a little while masks are very important we should all wear them but I don't want to see it on a cinema screen, maybe in five years' time, when something really fascinating comes out. I think there'll be something like uh, the Chernobyl series in about 10 years' time, which will blow all our minds. But right now, I, I, I think I'm done with overt references to, to this. I think in a few years' time, it will be reflective and it will actually be a story about what changed or what we learned. Now it's just going to heighten how devastating it's been. And that is not entertainment. No, that's the news. <laughs> we don't need the re- the repetition of that. Exactly. Um, so circling back to 100 feet of distance, that was shot on film, right? So what is it that makes you reach for film or digital to capture something? My heart will always option film first there's something just simply magic about it there's it's with stills as well it's the feeling of shooting something it's a chemical reaction 
everything is so digital and instant in the world that we live in now that to shoot something that's tactile and rewards patience that magic period between having shot something and waiting for it to come back from the lab it's nerve-wracking but there's also something incredibly special about that and it's denied to us in almost every art form now even waiting for an episode to come online you know every friday feels novel waiting for your footage to come back just feels mad but something about it gives you extra diligence in making sure what you're shooting is what you want to be shooting there's also the added element there that it costs a lot more money to shoot film currently three minutes of 16 millimeter is about 90 pounds processed and returned so there's huge markups there and it's cheaper to shoot digitally but if you know that those costs are associated with film you make sure not to waste a second and I love that deliberation I love going into a shoot knowing exactly what we need to get today and making sure we don't waste a frame of film on even repeating an action if we think that we got it. Whereas digital is a whole different kettle of fish. If you don't rein in certain crew members, and I'm guilty of it as well, and would have to be reined in by a first AD, you can just keep shooting the same take again and again and again because you obsess over getting it perfect when actually it's normally right on the first or second. And I think there's that whole other safety net that digital gives you, but can also be the web that traps you. Um, there's also times when digital is the cleverer choice. If you're going to be shooting any sort of improvised dialogue, you might not have the funds to just keep rolling on film. I can't imagine they shoot many improvised comedies on film. It's just the overheads are crazy. Whereas digital, you can leave it going and let the characters feel comfortable um, to actually, you know, go off on a tangent. And then you don't have to be sweating thinking, we're at the end of a thousand foot roll now. No, they can just keep going. The card space is free, essentially. And so, yeah, there's definitely advantages to both. I think if I had unlimited budget, I would always opt for film. It's just something special about it. I really love what you just said about the chemical reaction. And I do feel like you can be a little bit more creative and freer with film because it's a bit more forgiving. Yeah, although it is heavier to carry a film camera around or it's costlier, I agree with what you say about valuing every image that you're capturing and being so sure of what you're taking a picture of. And I think that's actually really refreshing. Yeah, and I also feel like on a hundred foot of distance as a case study, if I'd have chosen digital for that, I'd still be shooting it now. Even with that pressure of making it relevant, I think digital commodifies you too much, if that's the right word. But it just, it spoils you for the fact that you can keep adding to something. If you didn't get that shot, you can get it later, add it in. Whereas film, it's been crystallised and it's there. I've always kind of adopted that on like, I won't take a digital stills camera with me on like a walk or something because I won't appreciate the walk. I'll be taking a hundred photos when on a film camera, I might not even chosen to take that photo at all because you have to really think, is this worth it? And there is such a, a brilliant perspective you get from that if you attach value to it. Does this preference 
influence your visual style. What would you say your visual style is at the moment? How has this developed over time? Maybe this is in terms of the equipment you go for or, or your aesthetic. Yeah, I think a lot of it is shaped by the things that you watched and a lot of the time in like your most formative viewings. So I obviously grew up watching a lot of films of my dad and he seemed to like these 80s B-movies and things that look a little bit scuzzier but still have this cinematic ambition. And I can't deny that it hasn't affected the way that I like to do things. And I think of recent releases, it's films like Uncut Gems, which like really stoke my imagination because there's imperfections in it, but somehow brilliantly visceral and cinematic. And I love that. I love kind of embracing accidents or imperfections, but still packaging it as something purposeful and deliberate. And to me, that is in many ways just cinema where there are so many accidents. There's so many spinning plates on a movie set that you always read about this was a happy accident that happened, but they package it as something that was always intended to be. It's a really crystallized, condensed thing that runs for the duration. And I love that you're attaching purpose to chaos. How do you find the playoff between this retro aesthetic in a world of new technology? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm guilty of it. And I love retro technology. I have not just embraced film, but I'll go for the outmoded, you know, technologies. I, I love VHS and mini DV. And I, I did a lot of Super 8 when I first started as well. I think it's great if it has a purpose like I'm not sure if it keeps my attention or if I feel it's rewarding to watch something when they've obviously put a filter on it maybe just to dress it up when they could have with a bit of foresight done something more deliberate that serves the story better I think it's just a chip on my own personal shoulder but I always feel a little bit like it could have been better if gone for the real technology rather than tried to emulate it you see it all the time and it it is getting a lot more difficult to discern between like a film filter or like the VHS filter. But if you notice it, it takes you out of it for a second. It's increasingly more difficult to get your hands on these technologies. So I don't begrudge people that. But I think if you're going to use these retro technologies, try it first to use them in their original guise and their original form. If you go into it with deliberation and there's a purpose and a reason why you picked it, then it's great. But if it's literally there to band-aid a crack in your story or your approach, then it's a bit of an easy sell on that. I think it says a lot about the energy that's gone into something if it's very evident that someone has gone to that effort and hard work to actually use the real deal opposed to just trying to emulate a kind of feel in a piece of work. And sometimes it just seems so, uh, and obviously there's no wrong approach in the creative arts. Everything is open. But sometimes it confuses me that something quite futuristic is shot with like this retro film brain and lines and tears and, you know, like an old world cine look and... Yeah, it's maybe a reimagined future, but I'm not sure if they've really thought through 
what it's serving the narrative for and whether it's just been attached because it looks cool and this is like a magic bullet look that I can just put on this footage and then suddenly it looks interesting. I probably sound quite bitter when I say that, but I think it's just I appreciate purpose and deliberation. I think it definitely has potential to draw away from the value of the real thing. Your work spans from these short homemade pieces on film to shooting highly produced digital sessions or music videos, as well as commercial pieces like your excellent No Time to Light, Lashana Lynch video for GQ. How do you keep authentic in your style in these more commercial pieces? So I think we all have our own personal instincts and gut feelings when it comes to approaching a project whether it's creative or not and I think a lot about maintaining a personal style is trusting those instincts and going with them without forcing them on the client or the project or the artist trying to suggest them with reason and then also having conversations with who you're working with to make sure and this is a large part of what I try to do is to make sure that a large part of their personality is represented uh, as well as my directing style. And I think in that, what I really like to do is find something personal that can be shared between the artist, the brand, the client and the audience, some sort of building a connection there. And a lot of that can be built from simply having conversations through whoever you're working with you find out what they want from this or what their interests are and you might be able to put that into the film in like a very small sort of nod or wink moment recently we did the eels video and uh mark everett i asked him if there's any sort of easter eggs we can put into the video in costume that might make one fan think oh my God, this is addressed at me. Or I can see the in-joke there and it's so niche that it's rewarding. And so I always like to kind of feed that extra element into something. And so a lot of the time, I think in what I'm trying to make, there's that consideration for who's watching it and who wants to be watching it. Not the casual viewer who's just happened upon it. That's great, but... The person who's purposely tuned into this, how can I reward them for having made the effort? And I think that sort of personal imprint is hopefully what is something that kind of goes throughout my, my body of work. And like you say at the beginning, making sure that you really thoroughly understand the artist's vision or the client's vision, what they want, and then hopefully that honesty relationship is reciprocal and they'll start to understand exactly how you work and what you also want to reflect in the video exactly after all like it is a collaboration no matter how much of an auteur directors would like to look at themselves as it can't be made purely on their vision it's got to be a collaboration and there's a reason they're on set to begin with it is the client being an artist or a brand or or something else So I think you have to have that respect for what they want because at the end of the day, you wouldn't be there without them and this is really serving them and they are ultimately the face of this video. So if you come to that 
trusting relationship with who you're working with, I think the work really benefits. And since your work has started to pick up a bit more this year, when you are on set with these clients, how is your working practice shifted? You know, we spoke about adaptability. How have you found the commercial industry adapting to COVID restrictions and trying to work around those? Yeah, it's certainly one to adapt to. There's a lot more red tape, understandably. And, you know, we've got to be grateful to it. Everybody's safer. But it does make things a lot more difficult. And one of the major hurdles for me that isn't embedded in budgets or practicalities is simply the emotional connection that you lose giving direction to someone from behind a mask. Again, disclaimer, I love masks. We should all wear them. But um, wearing one and trying to emote something to an actor is really tricky and exhausting and I think that's something I won't miss and not necessarily something that you can adapt to too much rather than just persisting but the things that have been adaptable are how can we stay safe on set and what every crew member can do to make this a safer slicker production and a lot of that is in the planning and it does shape the way you go about a video you're not going to write in any large crowds. You're not going to write in restaurant interior, 20 people, extras. That is a luxury that currently can't be afforded. I found myself shying away a little bit from locations I knew would be a tricky area. Kind of privately self-run location houses are less of an attractive prospect during COVID because a lot of the responsibility is given back to the production crew whereas larger studios they've done an amazing job of preparing for this or at least adapting to it so that when you arrive on set they've handled a lot of the red tape that could slow you down and a lot of the times you know they might even have a COVID officer which saves you budget from hiring your own and there's definitely been that back and forth between labels or whoever your finances are about who is responsible for providing the covid officer and these precautions like whose responsibility and whose budget does that come out of so it's a minefield and one none of us are going to miss but it is definitely commendable on how we've still managed to make films videos throughout this time when there's been so much to wade through and with a lot of compromise too. And I think we'll probably see that, like you mentioned, coming out of this and looking back with that kind of new golden hindsight, I think we'll see how the projects change during the COVID year, hopefully singular year, um, and seeing how everything was a little bit smaller knit and if we were making films, it maybe had a cast of two and maybe they didn't get close to each other. Like there's all these extra elements that you might be able to pick apart just by looking through it. And it will be like COVID bingo, like this music video. Oh, I bet it was made in 2020 or 21 because tiny cast, studio. I just think there will be some telltale signs. And we've spoken about previously um, in another conversation about 
typically when you were in a film studio or a space shooting something and you'd be on your like third or fourth take by that point you're getting a little bit tired everyone sort of wants to wrap up and those days always felt like the ultimate stress level or the ultimate like tiredness you could get to and I do wonder how now maybe it does feel a bit more draining especially if you've done a really good take and you're really hyped about it people can't see your expression behind your mask so there's not that reciprocal enthusiasm going on yeah there's certainly an element of hype that's been diminished on set Uh, it's probably quite interesting to look at it from like a left field point of view but there's probably more efficiency on set now but less enthusiasm or that's the wrong word maybe just slightly less energy and it's more about like let's do the shot let's do it well and move on to the next one rather than getting gassed up by having seen something so amazing it just feels like if I get through today having made this film with as little amount of compromise as possible that will be a success whereas before it was like this element of anything can happen you know you're also on this knife edge that anybody on set says oh i'm getting symptoms of covid the whole shoot has to cancel so you're just going through on this tightrope hoping that you know we can just get through this and everybody's okay and the film can actually wrap today and then it wraps and nobody's allowed to go for a drink so i think it's one of these things where it is all about the end product where before I think maybe there was a degree of it that was about the ride and about the process. Yeah, this time around, it's certainly about the gratitude of just being able to actually shoot and get the work done. And that in itself is probably so much more rewarding at this point. And as you say, you've been factoring in a shift in locations as to when you're choosing locations. And do you feel like this has consequently changed the type of content that's being created? I've seen a lot more videos being set in wide open expanses. And you think, that looks nice and safe. And I think we're all looking for ways to embrace the sets and stages that we have around us in nature, places that feel safe and also look amazing. And maybe it's giving us an extra lens on what is actually surrounding us rather than opting for interiors. We're realising we are surrounded by a lot of amazing sets in, in nature. and Maybe that's a positive. I do think, looking back, it's funny that in 2018, when Laura Mish and I made uh, Lonely City, which was a series of three films coinciding with her EP, it was all about an empty London and we struggled to find an empty London. We had to get up at 4am in the summer and shoot for an hour. And then even at five, you had people arriving at work and, you know, the veil was lifted and yeah, we're in a bustling society again. Whether it could have been allowed or not, it would have been such a benefit to have done that film now because you could have just gone into the central and shot this stuff in midday even though it's the worst time of day to shoot you could have shot this stuff like you know in magic hour and waited for sunset rather than having to stay up all night and get these hauntingly empty exteriors i don't think we could ever have imagined it would get easier (laughs) to get an empty london 
What I enjoy about your videos is the simplicity of the concept paired with these visuals that really play with light and shapes and reflections and the quality of the locations you choose and the photographic skill set remains at the heart of production which helps to enhance and bring a fourth dimension to the music and for example you were speaking about the Laura Mish videos you did and for her track glass shards you play with sunset light leaks and you follow her body movement through the streets of London like a bit of a shadow and in Dan Kroll's away from today video it has some really stunning aerial shots of the seaside and it follows him running through some other really beautiful scenic locations and he's just running throughout the whole length of the video and I'll link your website in the show notes as well so people can check these videos out so they know what we're talking about. Greg.biz. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> what were the narratives of these videos? How did you come up with these concepts? Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. They are generally quite simple narratives. And I think I always opt for a simple concept that I know I can do well. A lot of my films begin with a seed of an idea, like it might be um, something that's suggested by the artist or something that comes to me having listened to the track. And that seed could be something visual. I think for Dan, it was literally the idea of him looking absolutely terrified running through a woodland. And for some reason, I liked that and I wanted to develop something around it. And once you have that seed... I try to put it into a short film structure or at least make it circular or like neat, tidy narratives. So I think, okay, how did he get there? And the way that it starts, perhaps I can end it in a similar way. And I like to find that sort of sometimes two-act, sometimes three-act structure in a short film I can translate over to a music video. So yeah, it will start with a singular idea and then I try to wrap it up into a larger whole. I think there's also something to be said for doing a bolder, simpler concept. It goes back again to having this relationship with the artist or knowing that ultimately they're the face of it and this is something that they want and they have commissioned. And I think ultimately it would be a failure if somebody watches a music video and they're so distracted or confused by a complicated storyline that they're taken out of the music. I think the video is always there because of the music. It very rarely goes the other way around. And you've got to serve the track and do the artist this justice. And so it really needs to feel symbiotic. And I think often if you're going to put in a hundred scenes and if there's any element that you might fracture the daydream state you hopefully have put your audience under, then it's at a loss. I love that idea of a daydream state. And with Dan Kroll's video at the end, when you've got him having just run all the way through these locations and then you see the other version of him and all of a sudden the lyrics will come together you understand the messaging of the video and you realize you've been watching something simple but actually you have just been on this journey and you have been told a hundred things that have made you come to this conclusion so I think that's really magical and it's really a skillful clever way of making a film I appreciate that you can write the blurbs on my website <laughs> <laughs> sure no problem <laughs> 
Um, do you find it harder to conceptualize for instrumental tracks like when you worked with Kamal Williams for New Heights which doesn't have any lyrics it's just some really wonderful instrumentals that's a good question I think I definitely used to struggle with it more but I think in recent years the music that I listen to is more and more instrumental and I think a lot of that and it's funny we're talking about daydreams is a lot of that is building a daydream state. I feel these instrumental tracks are much more conducive to me to get swept up in something. There's much more of a likelihood that I'll go into a daydream state listening to them. It's almost like a film score that's encouraging a scene that hasn't been written yet out of me. And I think in that way it's become probably my most preferred sort of music to write videos for. I think originally it was difficult because you don't have the lyricism and also in the editing process, there's a lack of the opportunity to divert to lip sync. And if you've made a video and there are some dead moments or there's some space, if you have some lip sync, you know you can cut to it and it will save your bacon and it will give you uh, a dynamic flow, the whole thing. So I think, yeah, there's less of a safety net when you're doing an instrumental video uh, and they tend to be a lot longer tracks as well. So I think a lot of the beauty in them is really taking the time to allow yourself to daydream and to focus more on the pre-production of it rather than perhaps look at it in post-production, which is just as valid. But for me, an instrumental track needs a lot of planning. I think it's really interesting what you say about going to that daydream and perhaps you are freer to come to your own conclusion and your own narrative about what you want to show with the artist rather than lyrics being really directive as to what should happen or, or what people expect to see. So that's really interesting. And Going back quickly to these stunning film locations that you've shot in, what do you factor in when you're choosing a location, perhaps in terms of your budget or how you can actually technically work in that space? Yeah, so there's always the element of um, budget. And I think originally when I was writing video, when I first started, I'd be in danger of going beyond my means. It'd be, you know, a 10K video and I'd have helicopters in there and it would be going over deserts. And after a certain amount of time submitting ideas and having producers explain to you very patiently that you can't afford that, you get much more adept to knowing what is available to you in that bracket, or at least what you can represent under that budget or fake under that budget. Like we've got a video, um, quite a low budget one coming up in April, and it's set a portion of it is set in ancient Greece and we're doing it in a quarry in Surrey. So there are always options, whether they're the first option you want to go for or not, that's left to be said. But I think the tick list is really on the boring side, budget. On the more exciting side, you want something of as much character as possible. Uh, something that's a real showstopper. I always think there should be at least one location in a video that makes your jaw drop and that can really command attention and there's no reason why any video shouldn't have that element to it we live on a beautiful planet and 
even the most mundane stories can be set in the most awesome places so there's that element and then there's often i mean you touched upon it as well it's got to be practical so you might have this amazing location but if you can't actually get your camera there and do it safely or if you can't even if the widest angle move around your actor like you want to then it it makes it moot. For the Eels video, we actually found it really difficult to find a video where there would be space behind the sofa with a back entrance window and then space either sides of the room for people to pass through. It seems like quite a easy thing to find, an open plan living room with exits either side and a window on the back wall. But once you try to find it, it's gold dust. And you think you've made it easy on yourself, but you realise in filmmaking, a lot of it is coming down to the best solution. And that is not always easy. Absolutely. And going back to the locations and making sure there's always that like showstopper location. I love when I'm watching something and I think, wow, where is that location? I need to find out right now. And if I can't find it out, I my mind sometimes goes back to it like a week later, like I must find that out. And then when you do find it out, you're always going to associate it with that film that was made. So it can be quite special, can't it? Definitely, yeah. A certain amount of importance or, or magic to somewhere. And I think it's probably happened to all of us, but if you happen upon a location that you've seen in a film or a music video or something, you're just like, wow, I'm here. And they were here. And there's something quite nice about that. I think it all boils down to the need for human connection at some point. So video content is becoming an increasingly crucial element of today's digital marketing strategy. And with the influx in short form video platforms, how are you strategizing these video concepts to appeal to an audience's retention? Yeah, that's definitely something to be addressed. And it always has been, but I think it's more a a subject of diminishing returns not diminishing returns, but more like diminishing attention spans. Originally, you'd want a really show-stopping scene to start your film because that grips your viewer. And that's generally the logic that's taught to people when they're writing their films or making their films start with a bang. And I think it's often been the way with even corporate films and, and stuff. You want to grab people at the start. You want to show your best shots at the start because likelihood of them seeing that amazing shot as a finale is not so great if they're not hooked by the start. And I think that is still the most relevant mode of operation today, but it's been kind of condensed into you need to make your first seconds really relevant especially like you know the main place people watch things now is i think instagram at least in my circle is so you know if you're not touched by those first few seconds you're not even going to watch the first six second film and that would have been like a minuscule amount of attention span now it's demanding a lot so you really do have to make it dynamic and interesting and perhaps start with that jaw-dropping location as your opening shot or perhaps give some sort of intrigue or mystery in the opening voiceover or dialogues that people need to know a little bit more. It's a little bit like clickbait. But I have noticed watching YouTube, when the ads come up, they always give you that little bit of clickbait just as the skip ad comes up. There's a twist, just a skip ad. And it's not 
a coincidence. They've known exactly, okay, skip ad comes up at eight seconds. We've got to give them a twist there. As well as the YouTube ads, it's also on IGTV. The button to keep watching often happens when they say, but then something happened I never thought would. And it comes up with continue watching. With all this in mind, you have to keep that at the front of your mind when you're editing, is what can keep this person watching so that they see the next scene. And they always say, leave a scene when you're writing with a cliffhanger that leads to the next scene. When you watch like a feature-length film, every scene ends with a place where you can't just pause and walk away. You need to know what happens next. And the good ones do it really well and you're hooked and the bad ones don't do it so well and you're looking at your watch in the cinema and stuff. So I feel like that's a real skill and applied technique to kind of keep people tuning in and to make them watch until the end in a society where it's becoming more and more challenging. And as well as strategizing that concept, the editing process is also really critical, isn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that boiled down to the editor and I can't remember the exact statistics, but I think the average shot length uh, in, you know, the golden era of Hollywood, let's say, you know, in the seventies, in I think it's about six seconds. And now the average shot length in the film is half a second. And I think editors have had to apply these techniques just to keep us stimulated and it is uh, a law of diminishing returns in that way. You know, if one film is more slick in its editing and there's more cuts, you hunger for that again. You, you want to see another film that's as rapid. And I think a lot less people are tuning into films that are just as, if not even more valid, just because they have these long dwelling shots and they call, they call those films slow, but they're not really. They have the same progression of scenes and, and ideas and they have the same hooks the shots linger for longer and yeah I think it's a definitive thing that, that, that the editor has to decide upon at the start of a process. Absolutely touching on this kind of digital disruption with audience retention how do you think that advancements in technology have enabled professional content to be produced within a small budget. You know, there's the influx of presets available and Adobe packages and more affordable cameras. How has this shift allowed you to experiment with different techniques, do you think? There's a really good Francis Ford Coppola quote. He was on the set of Apocalypse Now, and I think he's being interviewed for the documentary about it, Hearts of Darkness. And he said, and I'm going to be paraphrasing massively now, 20 years from now, there'll be some girl in Ohio who will use her dad's camcorder and make the most beautiful film any of us have ever seen. And she'll be the new Mozart. And film, as an art that relies on professionalism, will be destroyed at that moment and it will become a true art form. So I think in many ways, there's like a bitterness to that where he's kind of saying... Here I am having the worst time of my life on Apocalypse Now. Everything is going wrong. It's way over budget. There's a hundred crew. But then he's also saying film will purely become art when it's available to the masses. And there is a really interesting combating line there. And I think certainly it's helped me 
I would certainly have found it difficult to be a filmmaker if it weren't for all the tools available to me at a fraction of the cost as they were to people like Francis Ford Coppola. And, you know, I had my dad's camcorder growing up and then that became a mini DV camera which could plug into a computer. Suddenly you can edit your footage and then just at the right time YouTube became a thing and I was able to share my videos with a community that spans the globe. They didn't have anything remotely like that. They had to find financiers and they had to find cinemas that would exhibit their films. And it was so much more of a long process. I think it's amazing that we have that available to us. But the one thing about it is that now the amount of people who can make films, there's a lot more noise. Like there's a lot more people making things and putting it online, maybe without packaging it or putting as much thought into it as perhaps could have been uh, attached. I wonder, like, art galleries, if everybody could put up an oil painting, would the quality still be there? I know when I go to an art gallery, I'll see something that's incredible or at least stimulating, whether I like it or not. But if everybody could go into the same gallery and put their paintings on the walls, will you see the ones that really command attention? And it's all down to personal taste, but with it being this universal thing now, there's also that double-edged sword of more noise. Yeah, that playoff between having more art and having opportunity to create art and then having too much of it that it diminishes how you feel about it is interesting. And I certainly want to touch on that a bit later. But also, how has these new mediums allowed you to be successful as a freelancer? Now, for example, you can maintain an online portfolio that you have control of and you can you can send it to anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's so useful. It's helped me to an extent I probably can't even comprehend. I touched upon how without these tools, I wouldn't be where I am. Without the attached networking that comes with it, I wouldn't stand a chance. People can see my work on my website and then you know, I network with them because I can see their website and their presence. And a lot of it, you know, particularly before the last year and a bit, can happen in person. And I definitely did make a lot of in-person friends and contacts and people that I worked with. But your body of work is out there online. And if somebody likes it, they can contact you. And similarly, if I'm looking for a DP, director of photography, to work on, like, my next music video... I look at their body of work and I can see what they've done. And it's different to, you know, I don't really even know how it would have worked in the early thousands before the internet was so readily packaged for like video exhibition. But maybe DOPs are meeting up with directors and giving them their DVD to take home. But by that point, you've already had this meeting, which is beneficial, but you might have set up plans to work with each other. Then you go back and you see this work and you think, Maybe this isn't my style. And I think there are so many more steps to the process back then. Whereas now, at least that part is streamlined. In like a really hectic business, that is at least taking a few steps out of it. And it's a lot easier to recommend people because they can see that that work immediately, like you say. Touching back on technology and it being available and it shifting the amount of content that we're seeing... 
During the pandemic, we saw an even bigger variety of online courses surfacing to enable people to grow their skill sets and remain creative. For example, I was able to attend a few Museum of Modern Art classes, which with them being based in New York, I wouldn't typically have been able to attend. And these were attended by thousands of people. So what technical media skills should musicians adopt in order to create professional content themselves, do you think, and, and upskill themselves through all these new mediums that allow them to do so? I think first and foremost, um, editing. Yeah, editing to me is the ultimate control of what you're making. And you can do a great job of shooting something. And I'm guessing a lot of the musicians and artists in that realm will have a good understanding of how to record themselves acoustically, audio-wise as well. But if you have those two strands, your video and your audio, and then you give it to somebody else, you're removing yourself from the process. And that can be a good thing. You can have an extra pair of eyes on something and it can bring you know something new to it. And I would, as a freelance uh, filmmaker and editor, would suggest that you do that more often than not because you'll get the better product. But also it would be so valuable for the artist to have a basic understanding and editing so that they can keep more of a relevant personal presence themselves for the more kind of daily posts if that's something that they want to do but also because they can then talk to an editor about what specifically they want or at least talk in those terms so the editor and the artist can come to a more kind of symbiotic result where they collaborate more fully rather than perhaps the artist thinking you've put your personality on that video when I really want it to be an expression of me. What are your thoughts on using smartphones to shoot more long-form content, you know, like a longer video or something that's not a 30-second clip? I think it's great. Yeah, uh, it's amazing that we actually all have that technology in our pocket at any given time. And I think particularly for documentary, it's invaluable. And I know that on documentaries, even the higher budget ones people often reach for their phones to get this candid moment that they might have otherwise missed because maybe the card's being changed on the camera and this amazing thing has started happening i think more and more the risk of losing a moment or a shot is no longer a factor and that's that's brilliant i do think we don't want to get to a point where we lose the beauty of cinema and we neglect the more perhaps frustrating elements of building a camera rig and the schlepping and the heaviness of it uh, and all the attachments and the money that's attached to that for something more convenient than a phone but ultimately I, I don't really see that happening at least anytime soon yeah absolutely it's great for getting your creative eye and getting a style and getting deeply involved in creating something visual but yeah I, I hope that cameras and, and film and everything will still reign superior <laughs> me too it's been great that in recent years there's been a resurgence in film like you know the fact that kodak even reopened their lab and they've started making stocks that were before cancelled you know um ectochrome is back and the adoption of celluloid in like the industry has been a really positive thing and i think there's always going to be 
that newfound appreciation for something that might have been neglected by the generation before. So hopefully, even if things do air a little bit more towards the phone culture, there will be a generation who will revert back to the old technology of whatever we're using now. (laughs) To finish off, I do want to just dig a bit deeper into user-generated content and how the influx of it is affecting professional content. There was a survey carried out by a content creation company called Tint to 500 organizations and 75% of respondents to this survey claim that user-generated content makes content more authentic, which is greater than ever now that consumers are craving a deeper connection with brands, which also leads 48% of marketing professionals to believe that content created by customers can help humanize their marketing. According to Glassdoor, on average, a content producer in San Francisco has an average base pay salary of $72,000 per year, which is 30% above national average, but does mean that user-generated content can save brands the expense of a dedicated content producer. So I want to ask what detriment the growth of user-generated content has been to contemporary visual media and why is your authentic vision such a valuable contribution to the success of a campaign? Good question. Um, Yeah, this is probably one with a few answers to it. First off, why wasn't I living in San Francisco if that is (laughs) the starting wage or something? Like, wow, that's a lot better than London. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of elements to this. Yes, it's great to have a personal touch and um, user-generated content is definitely more and more popular and you see it in even the largest advertising campaigns now, real people sell and more people are becoming great at it and there's a general skill base in everyone now to make a video, Um, particularly with like the TikTok uh, generation, like everybody seems to know how to do basic editing now which is amazing and that's great what i worry about in that uh, kind of realm is those films videos those outputs tend to ride waves more so than even the film industry maybe the content would become a little bit more homogenized if it's generated that way i've even seen adverts becoming a little bit more similar to each other because it's a very easy way out. So perhaps we'll have less original ideas and more essentially testimonials. There'll be a new challenge for us in the video and filmmaking world to show our worth and to kind of sell why we can bring an extra element to things. And I think a lot of that is in concepts that might otherwise be forgotten or neglected in just going for the simplest user-generated approach. A lot more companies are looking for the all-rounder who can do a lot of the roles of a filmmaker, video maker, editor, um, social marketer, all in one kind of package. And they'll perhaps start paying for that a little bit more fairly, but ultimately they will think they're getting a better deal because the freelance economy is quite an expensive one if you're going to keep outsourcing these projects. But what they might be losing there again, is years of expertise from uh, industry or professionals. Because I think a lot of the people who will go into working for one brand as a dedicated all-rounder, I can see that being appealing to more entry-level people at the start of their careers because there's stability in that and they perhaps haven't built 
a, a network for themselves or a body of work. To me, the idea of going and working full time for a company is less appealing now because my body of work will become one brand the whole way through and very niche and perhaps not as fulfilling as choosing my own projects. So I would find it interesting if they find people who are really good in, you know, in the peak of their career going in for these all round jobs, you know, unless the market really needs people to do that. But I, yeah, I just feel like the quality might be lessened a little bit. It's a really big question with a lot of hypotheticals. But yeah, I think there's a lot of elements to it. Do you think this content creator role is more so in major labels? I mean, I've seen a lot being advertised recently. And also, I know firsthand that in an independent label, they don't have the budget to have this person. So often they are always just bringing in freelancers. Do you think that will kind of remain? What are you kind of seeing at the moment? I think it's definitely the major labels doing it and perhaps they have more of an excuse for it with more artists on their rosters and you know it's probably a lot more need for a, an all-rounder to be constantly making content but I think that is what it would boil down to is the c-word content and I don't think uh, you might be making something particularly a standalone or memorable in years to come But yeah, you'll be getting the numbers on their social media and you'll be pushing out a lot of material. But I think that it's always on a bit of a switch up for that as well. Um, But I can imagine independent labels still opting for the better quality when you need rather than the constant quality because you can have it. How does this affect the playoff then between you being seen as a commodity and not a luxury? Yeah, there's, I think that's definitely becoming a bit more of a blurred line now as well because video up until recently has always been seen as a luxury and perhaps something with a worth attached to it because I think people understood the amount of work and collaboration and moving parts necessary to make even the smallest of videos. But in recent times because people have all the tools available to them say on their phone and most people have made a video of some sorts personally then perhaps there is a danger of us becoming a commodity rather than perhaps seen as like a luxury good it's a swing and it's a roundabout because as a commodity you probably get hired more because you're seen as an affordable service and as a luxury you're seen as exactly that something to kind of splash out on when you can but I still worry if it's a kind of a confusion of attitudes I I would hate for video to be seen as this easy throwaway content to an extent in different industries is inevitable but I just hope that you still have these larger productions that are given focus and attention and care to that can stand out amongst the rest. And we've seen this becoming really interesting in the pandemic when we've seen videos like Glass Animals Dreamland. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so it's an amazing music video, such a huge achievement, um, not just for the filmmakers uh, kind of encompassing it, but also the lead singer who 
if I think you're going to put a link to it, but if you've seen it, he is the protagonist of the video. He is the filmmaker. He is the grip. He builds the sets. It's a really interesting look at all of the moving parts necessary to make a film. And I think you could look at it two ways. You could say, oh God, with this to-do list and this guide, artists don't need us anymore. They can read this simple bullet list of like how to put up a backdrop and how to load a card into a camera and press record, how to set up a light. And they would remove the crew and every artist can become this self-facilitating thing. But what's really interesting about that video and whether it is unwittingly done or not is that the actual result, the music video that he ends up making, which actually starts the video, it's great. It's really good, but it could have been so much better with a crew and with some extra elements that would have been simply out of reach for a single shooter added in. So what it demonstrates is, yeah, these things are possible. An artist can achieve these things, but it can be really special if you employ more people. And the video on a larger whole is showing him struggling to do all these things ultimately doing them well, but it just goes to show why all those people are on set. They're trained to do those things. I don't think he edited it, and I think that's a less glamorous part of the process uh, that they probably wouldn't want to show him training to edit and editing the video. So ultimately, it shows that he still needs post-production to make this video. And you're right, his attitude within that video is really telling, really, of perhaps even if they want to be doing all of that on top of actually performing in the video as well. So finally, the big question, <laughs> how do we retain value in professional visual media going forward? Yeah, I think that ultimately boils down to recognising and appreciating our, our own worth on a personal level and for what we bring to filmmaking that others who perhaps haven't trained in it or perhaps even haven't obsessed over it, can contribute. Everybody now can make a video. Do they sleep and drink it? Do they think about it every waking moment? And can they give you a decade's worth of experience attached to that too? We've got to see ourselves as more than walking cameras and microphones. We are people with, you know, our own thoughts and our own conceptual contributions that come into everything even if you hire you know a camera guy to do this shoot he's going to offer his opinion on how to do it best and I think that amount of collaboration is super important in realizing why we're still necessary and I think for a long part the earlier side of my career for a long time I perhaps being a control freak, believed I could do it all myself. And I was a bit of a jack of all trades, master of none. And I think my video suffered from it until I realised I had to share and I had to collaborate with people. And this is a team-based sport. And the only way you can make something brilliant is to trust in other people to make it with you. And so... It really does stem from that. If I thought I could make a film myself and do it well, being someone who trained in it 
and benefited from collaborating with people ultimately than an artist or a client would benefit tenfold from putting their trust in the care and the intuitions of people who have trained in it. That's such a lovely note to end on. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's been so interesting to, to speak about how creativity has helped you during the past year, how your process works, how you work to create these really interesting concepts, and also speaking about us retaining value in this world when there is so much digital disruption and it is so disposable and there's so much being created, which, as we say, is both a blessing and a curse. So, yeah, it's been really insightful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been uh, illuminating myself as well. Uh, It's been really interesting chatting with you and uh, it's been some really great talking points that I think have made me think more than I have done in in the last few months, perhaps. Thank you so much to Greg for being on Digital Dissect to discuss the intricacies of his work and everything from his love of analogue to conceptualising narratives and how this is affected by the engagement demand from a market saturated with user-generated content. If you found that conversation as wonderful as I did, then please subscribe to Digital Dissect on the podcast app of your choice for free to be notified when the next episode drops. Please get involved at rebeccareese.org slash digitaldissect with your thoughts and opinions and follow digital.dissect on Instagram to join in the journey as we figure out the complexities of the music industry. Please go and give a review as it helps others find the podcast much easier. Thank you again to Greg and all of the team in the show notes.